0: So, um, this morning we are continuing in our series on the book of James, and we're into chapter four, where Paul begins uh, a discussion on the issue of conflicts within and among God's people. And uh, this is certainly something relevant to us today. Um, and to think that here, in the very first epistle written, probably the first book in the New Testament written, they're already experiencing conflicts in the body of Christ. And uh, so we can see that this is pretty much par for the course. And this is something that God's people have experienced down through the ages. Now there's so much in this passage that I'm actually going to take two weeks to uh, To go through this week, I'm going to be just addressing what I think is the main point that James is making. And then next week we'll come and pick up all the other pieces of uh, things that he talks about in this passage, including the last two verses, verses 11 and 12, which we're not even going to read this morning. Before I actually read the passage this morning, though, I'd like to uh, talk about five foundation stones on which James builds the point that he's making. Um, because I think it will help us understand the passage much better once we read it. So five foundation stones on which this reasoning is built. The first one is that in the Bible, there's a close connection between idolatry and adultery. In the Old Testament, when God's people began to worship idols, the gods of the peoples around them, In order to vividly portray the gravity of what they were doing, God often spoke of their idolatry as adultery. And if you want to read a very graphic example of this, read about Israel's idolatry, which led to them being exiled to Babylon in the prophecy of Ezekiel in chapter 16, beginning in verse 15. You see, God is the husband of his people and his people are his bride. And when they are unfaithful to him, when they go after other lovers beside him, they are committing spiritual adultery. And spiritual adultery, of course, is not just, you know, sort of a a theoretical form of real adultery. Spiritual adultery is more serious, more weighty more dangerous than marital, earthly adultery. In fact, spiritual adultery is the root of all other sin. The second foundation stone, the second truth upon which James builds his reasoning is that God is a jealous God. And this sort of follows from the first one. Dozens of times in his word, God says that he is a jealous God. In fact, in the Ten Commandments, where he forbids idolatry, he goes on after that, you know, you shall not worship idols. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Then when the covenant's renewed, 14 chapters later, in Exodus 34, God, even in a stunning way, goes on to say, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God is even willing to take the name Jealous to communicate to the people that he's a jealous God. Now, because God loves his people so passionately, he is jealous of our love for him. In human marriages, if my wife developed an attraction to another man, that man is just another man. Conceivably, he might even be a better man than me. But in our marriage to God, God knows that if we give our love to someone else, We're not just attracted to some other God. We are attracted to a false God. We're falling in love with a lie. And that means we're cutting ourselves off from that which is our true life. Which means that we just don't get it. And ultimately that we are destroying ourselves. And so he is jealous The third principle, which is a foundation stone to what James is saying here, is that the world of mankind has an alternative way of thinking and living than God's way. In this passage, James, when he refers to the world, it's not the world as our planet. It's not the world as all the people who live on the planet. It is the rebellious system where man gets to indulge himself with whatever he wants without respect to God. Of course, this system, of course, the system of truth in God's word is totally God-centered. He is the beginning and end of all history. All things are by him and for him, and through him. But the world has an alternative system of thinking, a system of thinking which is contrary to God, a system of thinking which is based on the deception of the evil one and began way back in the Garden of Eden. And this alternative view of the world says that man is the center of all things. Man is the one who decides who he is. And what life is for. And what is right and wrong. The fourth foundation stone is the principle of prayer. You see, God loves his children. And one of the expressions of that love is that he invites us to pray. To bring our requests to him. And he loves to answer his people when they pray. He loves to give them what they ask and what they need. But... Like any good parent, he doesn't like giving his children things which are bad for them, things which he knows will harm them. So, God is not in the business of providing his children with idols when they ask for that, so they can worship someone or something else besides him. So, God's people must come to their Heavenly Father in prayer with the right attitude not wanting to merely indulge their own passions, but wanting things which can be enjoyed in the context of their love for him. But only God knows us completely. And sometimes we ask him for things which he knows we desire for the wrong reason, even if we don't realize that. And so he asks us to trust him and teaches us to pray, yet Not my will, but your will be done, Lord. The fifth and final foundation stone upon which James builds his teaching in this passage is the gospel of grace. In spite of the fact that people commit spiritual adultery by coveting things of this world and even indulging in them, The good news is that God's grace in Christ is greater than human sin and able to overcome it. We might assume that God as our husband would repudiate us and divorce us if we turned to other lovers. But no, amazingly, he is a gracious God who is ready to have us back and restore us to himself This gospel of grace, of course, is rooted in what Christ did upon the cross, where he bore our sins as our substitute, such that our sins are forgiven. Over the years of pastoring, I've counseled a number of people who were struggling to decide whether to take their unfaithful spouse back or pursue divorce which was their biblical right to do. And one of the things I regularly have said to them is, if they are not brokenhearted over what they did, if they are not ready and willing to commit their whole hearts to you and repudiate the other lover, then you definitely should not take them back. If they want to be friends with their other lover, they can't be your spouse. And it's similar, I think, with God. To appropriate his gracious willingness to take us back, a person must humble himself or herself before God, mourn over their sin, and come to him, draw near to him. Then God will lift them up to a place of gladness and forgiveness and eternal life and nearness to him. Now, Keep these five foundation stones in mind as we read James 4, 1 to 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So now I'd like to just focus for a few moments on the flow of the passage. I believe it's all one thought process in the mind of James and in the mind of God as he's revealed it to us through James. He sets out in verse 1 to address the root cause behind the conflicts being experienced in the churches to which he's sending his letter. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? What is behind it? What's going on? And this is his answer. In the second part of verse 1 and first part of verse 2 is it not this that your passions are at war within you you desire and do not have so you murder you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel he says that the conflicts between believers are caused by conflicts within believers for we have divided hearts not hearts that are purely devoted to God So we desire things and when others get in the way of acquiring those things that we desire or threaten our possession of those things, fights break out. But it's all because of the worldly things that we desire and covet. And then he says that we're not going about getting the things we want in all in the correct way. We ought to go to the Lord and ask him for the things we want he says you do not have because you do not ask but sometimes of course people do ask but they ask in an inappropriate way, in an inappropriate way so he says in verse 3 you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions so whether you covet and end up fighting with one another or whether you ask for what you want just to indulge yourself. Either way, you show yourselves to be adulterers, lusting after worldly lovers instead of loving the Lord who is your bridegroom. And he says this in verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then he says, don't you realize, in verse 5, that when our affection strays to other lovers, that it provokes God's jealousy toward us? But even in all of this, God's grace is great enough to cover our spiritual adultery if we humble ourselves before him. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. And that's such an important transition in the in his reasoning here, that big but, but, which is caused caused it's designed to arrest our attention, and and contrast what he's about to say with what he said before. But he gives more grace, more grace, more than what? Well, more than our sin. He gives grace that is bigger than our sin. But he doesn't give it to the proud. God opposes them. He gives it, he gives grace to the humble, he says. And then he concludes his exhortation by urging people to get busy humbling themselves before God and repenting of their love for worldly things and their double-mindedness. In my opinion, what James is saying here is really important for us to hear. Every Christian, every church needs to hear and understand the analysis of sin that James is uh, laying out before us here in James 4. The concept that conflicts among Christians are caused by idolatrous desires in our sinful hearts is not a human insight into the psychology of human relationships. It is divine truth that God gives us through James here. For God sees right down into our hearts and knows exactly what's going on. Now, if you were having conflicts with your spouse and you decided to go to a professional marriage counselor together. You might get help from them on how to communicate better with each other, how to learn to compromise with each other, how to steer clear of controversial subjects, how to understand the triggers which cause each of you to react the way you do. And all of this can be helpful. But as we see here in James, none of that really gets to the heart of the issue, does it? At the heart of conflicts is wrong desires. That's why we react why we react with anger when someone prevents us from having or getting what we want. The problem goes deeper than our interpersonal skills. Deeper than our childhood experiences and how they affect us. Deeper than our habits. Even deeper than our thoughts. The problem goes down to the level of desires. There's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with the things we desire. Conflicts are but the symptom Sinful desires are the disease. And this doesn't just apply to conflicts. It applies to almost all of our problems. It applies to our worries, our fears, our anger, our shame and embarrassment. It applies to a struggle with lusts or with porn. It applies to discouragement. Frustration, impatience, bad habits, stinginess, discontent. It applies to our struggle to put up with difficult people or our struggle to put up with physical maladies. All of these problems and many others are rooted in sinful desires. Idols we cherish and get identity from and security from. Idols we think give us life. We are adulterers. And thus it is that each Christian is in a constant battle with idolatry and adultery. And if that isn't blatantly obvious to each one of us, in our own experience, then we don't understand what's really going on in our hearts. As was mentioned this morning by our brother Jordan, John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. Our hearts mass-produce idols. The world has very many appealing things which can lure us away from Christ. And we have sinful hearts, and that means that worldly things appeal to us. Worldly things, you know, it's easy when we hear worldly things to think about a certain category of things. But it's deeper than the way we usually think. The kinds of things that I'm talking about are things like being in charge of our own lives. Like doing what we feel like doing. Like not worrying about the consequences of tomorrow. We don't like to have to always submit to someone else. Or how about this? We love the praise and approval of other people. We love esteem. We love to be highly thought of. We don't like having to wait for the end when finally God will express to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. But the fact is we love putting our confidence in tangible things that we see and touch in the now rather than in invisible things which are promised but not yet possessed. It's these kind of evil desires that James is talking about that lie behind all of our superficial struggles you know uh, anyone who's into gardening or landscaping knows that there are enemies they may be called weeds, they may be called trees that are undesirable or whatever but there's plants that keep coming that, that you have to constantly fight and anyone who's done this a lot knows that you can keep cutting something like that off at the, at the ground, and it just keeps growing back and growing back. And it takes a lot more work to really get the root out, to kill the root or to pull it out so that that thing stops being annoying. But, you know, in, I have an area where I'm trying to let certain bushes and trees thrive, and there's many other things that are vying for growth, and and uh, and so if I just keep cutting them off of the ground, all I'm doing is actually increasing the strength of that plant because the roots are stronger and deeper, and and uh, it's easier for them to keep popping up, and and uh, but it's so much effort for each individual one either to be pulled up or. Poison so that they don't so that they die, but that's the only way to stop that thing from coming back. And in the same way, we we have this in our hearts, and God is, um, we have these things that keep cropping up, and we think that we just are operating on the surface level and trying to stop things, but it can't work that way. We've got to get to the heart of things. We've got to get to the root of the problem. So, what do we need to do? Well, the first thing we need to do is to realize that there is a sinful form of contentment. It's when we are content with our sin, with our idolatry, with our adultery. And there's a sinful form of peace when we've made peace with our sin. And if we're going to indulge in this sinful form of contentment and this sinful kind of peace, if we're going to avoid that, we've got to be determined to discover our sin and to deal with it in the way God tells us to deal with it in spite of the pain of the process. And since we treasure idols, by definition, we desperately want to protect them. So we have within us great natural reluctance to have our idols exposed for what they are. Because then we'll feel guilty about them if we don't address them. But how can we read this passage and think then in any way it is okay to avoid dealing with the root of our sins. How can we read this passage and think that the pain of humbling ourselves and repenting isn't worth it? We've got to ask ourselves, do I want God or do I want my idols? Because Jesus says you can't have both. The second thing is asking for God's help to begin to analyze and realize. James here traces their conflicts back to their idolatries. And we've got to trace our struggles back to our idolatries. Do you recognize your idols? Can you name them? Are you able to discern what's going on in your heart and life? Do you see that your surface problems have root causes in your desires? Do you recognize your desires as evil? Do you recognize your idols and call them idols? Are you able to diagnose what deep down adulteries are bubbling up into the struggles of your life? The issue, you see, is not whether we are adulterers, but how we are adulterers. There are plenty of usual suspects in 21st century America with all of its comforts and securities and pleasures on every side. And we get influence and we become part of The culture around us. So that's a good place to start to think about. But there are things there. Whether you know it or not. So the first step is to make a commitment to investigate. The second step is to begin to analyze and realize. The third step is what you do when you've realized your idolatries and adulteries. And the fact is some of us really don't need to go through the other steps. Some of us already know right now what idolatrous desire we struggle with. What unholy desires are causing other symptoms in our lives. You know, one thing which happens is that we get used to our sin. It stops bothering us. It doesn't pierce us anymore like it should. Our conscience is no longer in agony when we sin. We've like allowed sin to move into a room in our house and we just accept that it's there. If this is the case, then what we need to do is what James says to do. Be wretched. Mourn. Weep. Turn our laughter to mourning. Turn our joy to gloom. Humble ourselves before the Lord. You know, some people live to avoid pain. They can't try to work out conflicts because the process is too painful. They can't invest or try to figure out their sins because that's too painful. They're just trying to survive without any more pain than they already experience. But the fact is, sometimes we cause ourselves more pain by trying to avoid pain. God says that he is our comforter. But he doesn't mean that he will not allow us and sometimes even command us. To experience pain. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.5. We share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. So through Christ we share abundantly also in comfort. Both are true. And here in James 4.9 is one place where God commands us to experience pain. Be wretched, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Stop laughing. Sin isn't funny. Imagine a guy sitting at a bar with some of his buddies who are ribbing him about the affair that he's having with a woman in his office. And he's laughing along with them. But what he doesn't know is that he has butt-dialed his wife. And she's listening to the whole conversation. And believe it or not, I know of this happening in real life. Is it funny to her? Her heart is being shattered. While he laughs. Well, our adultery isn't funny to the Lord either. But God doesn't just call us to feel bad, He calls us to return to Him and He calls us to reform our ways. If we are living in sin, then He says, You must cleanse your hands through repentance and through submission to God. If we are double-minded, then he says we need to purify our hearts. But James doesn't even leave us there. James leaves us at the end of the passage with some very precious promises. If we resist the devil, he will flee from us. If we draw near to God... He will draw near to us. If we humble ourselves before the Lord, He will exalt us. The emotional pain isn't the end of the story. The story ends with being near to God. The story ends with being exalted by God. The story ends with God picking us up and holding us in his arms as Jesus picked up the little children and held them in his arms and blessed them. So he will do to us his little children. Let us pray. Oh Lord, what a rich passage you've given us here. So much to say to every one of us for Lord We are sheep, and we have gone astray, and we have turned to our own way. And we, on our own, O Lord, are lost. But we thank you for your love. We thank you for the lamb that was slain on our behalf. And we thank you that you welcome us back, O Lord, when we realize the gravity of our sin. And when we stop laughing about it and start weeping about it. And we want to come to you even today, O Lord. And we want to mourn over our sin. And we remember what Jesus said. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And we thank you for the comfort that we receive from the knowledge of your forgiveness from the knowledge of your love, and from your promise of a day when sin will not bother us anymore, but when we will be made pure before Christ for all eternity. And now, dear Lord, as we stop on the way of this long journey of life, to get some refreshment from you, we come to the table where you offer us the body and the blood of your Son to strengthen us on our way and even to cheer us by giving us a taste of that great banquet that awaits us at the end of our journey. We pray that as we come to this table, O oh Lord, that we would meet you there and that we would feed upon you there, O Lord. And that we would have this food that others don't know about, which feeds us and fills us and satisfies us. For Lord, our food is Jesus. For he is the true food and the true drink. We pray in his precious name. Amen.